Part of my testimony includes two various times where I got this little booklet. There's a little track. And in this track, there's this, this little comic strip. It's not really a comic book, but it's a comic strip. And it, it tries to communicate the gospel through pictures and, and comics. And in that track, uh, you probably know what track I'm talking about. It is probably the most famous track, probably the most published piece of literature ever, just because of the way it is. Uh, the track's called This Is My Life. And in that track, it gives a story of a, a man who's rich and then he dies and then he's carried off into heaven where he meets God as his judge. And I remember uh, in that track, when he dies and he's standing before God, they say, play back the track, play back the real, play back his life. And so the giant screen comes out and it then has his life on the screen and it plays it back. And then it shows you various things that he does, but not just things that he does, but things that he thinks about. And to me, that's one of the most terrifying realities of the judgment, is that not only will we be judged by what we do, but even the things that we think about, we will be judged. Just imagine if I had the capacity to pull down this overhead and take your thoughts over the last week and just sort through them right here in front of everybody. How would you feel? What would we see? What would be there? A man once said, probably an overstatement, but he said, when you wake up in the morning, the very first thing that you think about, that is your God or your idol. Now again, that might be an overstatement. You might wake up and think, hmm, the coffee smells good. Obviously, coffee's not your God. It's an overstatement, but there's some truth to that. What you spend most of your time thinking about volitionally, you decide voluntarily to think about that. What occupies most of your mental thinking probably is your God. At very least, it's something that's taking up massive amounts of your thinking capacity. And we're supposed to use our minds to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we get through the sermon. So go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And we'll stop there. So our passage, just like most of Hebrews in the beginning of Hebrews, is contrasting Jesus and the angels. And here we see that Christ is not just a superior being. Because there are more than just, it's more than just God who's a superior being than human beings. We also have angels who have unimaginable power, beauty, and dignity. In fact, we, we see it right there in our passage in verse 7. You have made him, that's man, a little lower than the angels. So we're not alone in the universe. Even the secular mind kind of gets this. There's this preoccupation and fantasy about aliens. There's just constantly people are, are thinking about aliens. People go on the moon and looking for them. On the moon. Every, just all over the place. There's all kinds of movies about the aliens and the aliens invasions and all these kind of things. There's just kind of fascination with this idea that we are not the only being in the universe. 
And in fact, we are not the only being in the universe. That there is, of course, God, and there is humans, and then there are demons, and those aren't fantasy creatures. They really do exist. We wrestle against not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and workers of darkness. And there's also angelic beings that are good, good angels, usually just referred to as angels. And every time we see these angels in the Bible, what is the normal response when a regular human being encounters an angel? They just seem to interact with perfect harmony? No. Usually when they stand in front of an angel, they are dumbstruck. They fall straight down as if they were dead. In fact, we have a scene in the Bible, it's kind of surprising, it's in the book of Revelation, where John, he's encountering angels all the time, but then he meets with an angel. Does anyone remember when he, John, the apostle, the follower of Jesus, the writer of scripture, does anybody remember what happens to John when he encounters an angel? Not once, but twice in the book of Revelation. He's tempted to worship the angel, where the angel has to rebuke him, say, do not do this. So the point of all that is to say that angels are magnificent, they are wonderful, and if John was tempted to worship an angel twice, even when he's seeing visions of God, he sees visions of God, and then he sees an angel, and he's tempted to worship an angel. So that just tells you how amazing and glorious angels are. In fact, the Bible gives us warnings several times about the worship of angels, because angels are magnificent, incredibly beautiful, and just shockingly amazing beings. Nevertheless, Jesus is not just beautiful, powerful, and amazing dignity. Because again, angels have that. But rather, Jesus is something that only God has. He is the creator of all things. So there's this big divide of creation. There's creator and creation. And we need to make sure that we never forget that. Jesus is not just superior to us in power and beauty and dignity, but he is rather our creator. He is the creator of all things visible and invisible. All of those angels, those magnificent beings, they have a king. It's called the Lord of hosts, which is Jesus. Jesus is the king of angels' armies. It was actually a song recently, a couple years back, that talked about Jesus being the king of angel armies. And that's what the phrase Lord of hosts means, that he's the Lord of the heavenly hosts, the heavenly armies. He is the being that is before all things, and in him all things exist. In Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Not in angels, only in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, a little bit closer in context, it describes Jesus in this way. He was appointed heir of all things, and through him also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, is upholding all things by the word of his power. This is an absolutely staggering statement, if you think about that. That Jesus is the creator of the worlds, of all things that exist, in every world that will ever exist. Jesus is that creator. And not just that, but Jesus is your sustainer. Everything is held together. If Jesus let you go, you would disappear out of existence and all of creation with it. So in short, Jesus is not just superior in power and dignity and beauty, but rather Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is, in short, divine. Angels, of course, in contrast, are created beings, and they serve and worship the triune creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's what our text is doing. It's, it's contrasting Jesus, it's making that continuous contrast between Jesus and the angels so that you 
aren't tempted to be confused about this. Very clear. Jesus is not an angel. You know, there's a whole group of people who say that Jesus is an angel. Anybody know that group? They're the people who knock on your door. There's two people that knock on your door. I wish there were three. There should be three. There are two people. There's the Mormons. You can identify a Mormon pretty easily. They're usually young. They call themselves elder, but they're like 18 years old. There's two of them. They used to ride bikes, but now they don't. They usually have a name tag on. That's a big indicator that you might have a Mormon. If you see another group of people, a little bit older, knocking on your door, unfortunately, they're part of this sect called the Jehovah Witnesses. And they believe that Jesus and Michael are the same person, and Jesus, in fact, is an angel. So this, this false belief that the Hebrews author is trying to nail down so that none of you become Jehovah Witnesses is, in fact, what people have done and become Jehovah Witnesses. But I said there's two groups. So there's the Mormons, Jehovah Witness. What's the other group that should be knocking on your door? Us. <laughs> should be Baptists. We're known for eating. Nothing wrong with that. We should not be known for this. Just saying. But anywho... Back to our text, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, for which we speak, in subjection to angels. So, we have two questions. One, when did he speak of the world to come? He says, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak. Well, we'll look at that. When did he say that? And two, what does it mean, this future world? What is this future world? You know, it's staggering to me that so often, even people who are biblically literate will talk about going to heaven. One day we will be in heaven. There's some truth to that. And if they mean it in a certain way, that's fine. If that's a shorthand for the world to come, that's fine. If they mean temporarily, that's fine. But I actually think a lot of people actually believe that heaven is your destination, right? Heaven or hell. Hell's right. Heaven, no. That's temporary. That's, that's actually not right. It would be, should be heaven or Hades. But we'll divide that in a second. So we'll talk about when did he talk about this world to come? And then what is this future world? So let's look back. He says that he spoke about this future world. But when did he do that? Well, look, turn back to chapter 1. We're going to scan through chapter 1 and chapter 2 to try to find the references where he spoke of this future world to come. Now, you guys are just jumping into this because I brought you here. But if you were reading this, it would be more stand out to you. You'd just be more asking yourself, what is he talking about? I don't remember any world to come. So that's why I'm bringing you that. Because I, really, what we try to do in preaching and teaching is model the way that you should be studying your Bible. Right? Sometimes we get into these quiet times which is nothing wrong with quiet time. In fact, it's a very good habit. Many godly men before me have recommended this because they have gained much benefit from reading God's word and applying to themselves in a quiet time usually first thing in the morning. Nothing wrong with that. But one problem that can happen with quiet times is sometimes it can turn into a checking the block, right? You wake up, you brush your teeth, you drink some water. If you have some medicine in the morning, you take that medicine, You might go for a short jog, and you might just do some quiet time to check in off the block, which requires you to read a chapter a day or whatever, okay? Again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we got to be careful that we're not just reading the Bible to check the block, but instead we're actually reading 
and trying to engage with the text, trying to let God speak to us, asking the text questions and letting it apply into our lives. So if you were to naturally read this, you should be asking yourself, I don't remember him speaking in a world to come and then going back and digging into the text, which is what I'm going to try to model for you. So back in Hebrews chapter one, look to verse two. We're looking for where he spoke about the world to come. Hebrews chapter one, verse two. God has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Well, what does it say there, this future world? Well, it's implied. Heir of all things. What is he talking about? Heir of all of creation, which includes the consummation of the world. Jesus, in one place, calls this the regeneration of all things. This is really the entire scope of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption restoration of the original creation. He being appointed heir of all things is talking about this stuff right here. All right, verse four. Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What's that more excellent name? So Jesus, through inheritance, through his death, burial, resurrection, his work, his life, death, and work, received a name more excellent than the angels. Well, what name is that? What name? Christ. The name is King, Lord. That's the name that he's received. Over what? Over all creation, once again. In verse six, it says this, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, if you have an ESV, it might say something a little bit different. Without, I'm reading from the New King James, and that's following the literal Greek. Once again, This is talking about when he brings the firstborn back into the world. This is at the second coming. Why is Jesus coming back? Jesus talks about this in his parables. He left, and now he's coming back to receive a kingdom. See, there's two opposite extremes. People in the, the more dispensationalist camp, they get that Jesus is coming back to receive a kingdom. They get that. But they forget that Jesus currently is reigning at the right hand of the Father, where he reigns right now. But sometimes in the more reformed camp, we get the opposite problem. We so emphasize that Jesus currently is reigning right now as king is that we forget that the Bible talks about him coming back to receive a kingdom, right? It's an already not yet reality. Jesus is king, but his kingdom has not fully broken into this world. That's why it's so broken, right? I mean, if you guys looked outside out there, this world is broken. America is getting worse and worse and more and more decadent. Some of you are a lot older than me. You know this a lot more than I do. I don't even recognize this place anymore. It's so wicked, so vile. How could this be? Is Jesus reigning on the throne? He is reigning. But his kingdom has not fully broken into this world. And one day it will. And that's why we should be praying in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom, who knows that Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, not your kingdom came. Your kingdom come because there's a future aspect there. All right, verse eight. But to your son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness more than your companions. Once again, we have this idea of the throne of God or his kingdom, that already not yet reality, that this throne is forever in the past, in the present, and to come. It's that world to come. Verse 13, 
But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? What is Christ doing right now? Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? He's currently working primarily through the church to conquer his enemies. That's the expansion of the church, expansion of the gospel, the rescue of sinners from the clutches of Satan. And he's doing that until all of his enemies, I believe that primarily refers to the last conversion of his enemies that he turns into friends. And once that happens, once the fullness of the elect come, then Christ is going to get off of his throne, come back with angels' armies along with the saints and recapture the world forever. That's what's going on there. That's that world to come he's talking about. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Notice the future reality. Those who will inherit salvation. And then chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we neglect if we, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So that leads to this idea of salvation. Why am I bringing that up when I'm talking about the world to come? It's because, once again, I think we can fall into an overemphasis. We can start to pick our own emphasis and then start ignoring other pieces of scriptural data. The Bible talks about people being saved, being saved. Very, I think there's only one reference, but it's still there, the idea of being saved. And it talks about that you are saved and talks about that you will be saved. So there's a, a past, present, and future idea of our salvation. Well, we often focus on this idea that we are saved, Right? People say, are you saved? I am saved. We talk about that a lot. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you are saved through faith, are saved. So there's nothing wrong with this concept of currently being saved. Okay, But if we're people of the book, we will immediately recognize that the vast majority of the time, the Bible doesn't talk about being, being saved, certainly not, or just are you saved, this present tense reality, Right? If you read the Bible, you'll constantly see this emphasis on a future salvation. And we need to not get that distorted in our minds. Salvation is primarily a future reality. Yes, you are currently saved, meaning you have a right relationship with God. But the benefits of that is primarily future. Salvation is primarily an eschatological reality. So just some examples of that, just to show you that. Hebrews 1.14, we already looked at that. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Salvation being saved is primarily a future reality. Matthew 24.13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The three Christian virtues are faith, that's a present reality, love, present reality, hope is always future-oriented. What's the hope we have? The hope of this future salvation. So Jesus has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, that's something future, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are being kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. It's a future reality. The, the inheritance is future. It's reserved for you in heaven. It's waiting for it to be revealed for you. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory that shall be revealed to us. The Bible's full of statements like this. That salvation is primarily future. And I think that we as Americans, who have so much benefit from just having a stable society, who are not being actively persecuted, can start to primarily start thinking about salvation as here and now. See, we, we oppose the prosperity gospel. But sometimes we have our own version of the prosperity gospel. See, the prosperity gospel out there is that you can be richer than your neighbors. That rich means richer than other people. It means that highest tax bracket or whatever it is. But we can fall into the middle class prosperity gospel. We can start to believe that salvation, whether we would say this or not, is primarily about just living a nice American dream life. And as we see our culture crumble, it starts to scare us. But that's not salvation. Salvation is not primary. That's the tertiary benefit of living a godly life. Salvation is not get right with Jesus so that you do the right things, have a nice stable family, and have a great life on the earth. That's a tertiary benefit. And that benefit can be taken away. See, that gospel doesn't exist in most places of the world. Most places of the world, you come to Christ, your life won't get better or get worse because they're going to try to kill you. Right? We, need to, we need to recover what salvation primarily means. It doesn't primarily mean saving yourself from drug addiction, save yourself from being a spouse beater. or what all, those, Praise the Lord, those things are good, those things do happen. But that's, not, that's a tertiary benefit. Salvation is primarily about your soul and your eschatological destiny of where you will be. And so we need to make sure that we don't have our eyes primarily on the things of this earth, but our eyes are primarily with Christ, where it can never be taken away, right? In Matthew 6, 19, we, Jesus tells us this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. There's a whole book that Randy Alcorn wrote about that verse. He called it the treasure principle. And here's the treasure principle. It says it right there. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But your treasure isn't just your cash. It's what you find precious. It's what you find valuable. It's where your hope is. Where is it? Is it in your 401k account? Is it in the equity of your home? Is it on the next vacation? Is it in your job, your status, your career, your looks? Where is it? What, where is your treasure? Because if it's in those things, then your treasure is on earth, and your heart will be there. But if your treasure is in heaven, where Christ reigns, then your heart will be there. We need to have our eyes set on Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages uh, that I've, I've seen this passage before, but I heard a sermon on this passage, and it really just blew me away. I want you to turn there. It's Luke chapter 10. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 17. Luke 10, verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So Jesus sent out the 70, and he gave them power over the demons, and they cast out the demons, and they come back, and they rejoice. And they say, Lord, even the demonic forces, because of your great power, have become subjected to us. We can cast them out. Verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the evil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Here it is. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Do you see that? Don't rejoice that you can cast out demons. Don't rejoice that you have a long and prosperous life. Don't rejoice that you're beautiful and you're rich and you're prosperous or any of these things. Don't rejoice in those things. That's all tertiary. Some of that stuff is good. Casting out demons is good. I'm not saying those things are bad necessarily, but don't rejoice in that. But rather rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven, that your treasure is really in heaven. You gotta understand, salvation, being saved, is primarily an eschatological reality. You see that? It's primarily about the future. It's primarily about the world to come. Look back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. That's what's going on there. That's why he can say, the world to come, which I've spoken of, when he has not yet said anything about that. But he has. Because every time the Bible talks about salvation, I want you to think about the present. I have a right relationship with God. I'm justified. But I want you to also think about the future idea of, of, of the the progressive idea of, of being sanctified, but I want you to primarily think about, just by just exegeting scripture, is that salvation is primarily an eschatological reality. And then we need to get the focus back where the Bible is, which is about that world to come. So this world to come, he has not put in subjection to angels, but rather he has put in subjection to Christ. That Christ, the world to come, is under his domain. And in a, in a very direct sense, Jesus Christ will literally be on the earth, reigning from the earth, and everything will be completely in subjection to him. There'll be no more sin, no more evil, no more any of those things, right? And that's good news, because who doesn't want Christ reigning? Who doesn't want peace on the earth? Who doesn't want the evil obliterated? But it's even better news than that, because it's not just that Christ will reign, but that you will reign. I want you to see that. It's not just that Christ will be on the throne, but you're going to be on the throne with him. Because what is true of Christ becomes true of you when you are in Christ. Everybody seen that phrase in the Bible hundreds of times, in Christ? Well, what that means is whatever is true of Christ, mostly, will be true of you if you're in Christ. So if Christ reigns on the throne, and if the world to come has been given to him, and you're in Christ, what does that mean for you? That means you will inherit the earth. That means you'll reign with them. That means that the earth will be in subjection to you. The early church had a term for this called theosis. This is, this is a biblical idea that what happens to Christ filters down to all the people that are in him. And so this means that the world to come has been in subjection to Christ and to you in him. Now, if you really think about that for a second, that should get you jumping up and down and singing hallelujah. But I think sometimes it doesn't. And here's why. Because when we think about the future kingdom to come, it's all spiritual. And we've never been to the spiritual. So it's all this floating in cloud stuff. It's so intangible that you can't really get your mind around it. You can't get excited about floating in the cloud somewhere because you just don't know what that experience. In fact, some people have even said that it's a nightmare to them. That's the worst thing imaginable, just floating around somewhere. But, but that's not the actual biblical picture. It's not just floating around somewhere in, in some inferior body and doing who knows what. But the actual picture is a resurrection. 
right? Our hope is that we will rise again with physical bodies, just like Christ and just spiritually rise, but he actually rose with a physical body. And that physical body corresponds with a physical universe. And you know a lot about that because that's where you live. That's what our inheritance is. That world to come that Christ will reign over is actually a physical earth, just like this one, but better. That's what we have. We will inherit this beautiful earth with all of its creation, with all of its beauty, with all of its riches, with all of its pleasures. And when you start to think about that, and you start to let your mind play about that, you should get excited, right? This is a whole movement. It's called FIRE. Does anybody know about that movement? Financial independence, retire early. There's a whole movement where people get really fired up about saving as much money so they can retire as early as possible because they just want to not work and, and enjoy the pleasure and just enjoy retirement life, okay? People get excited because they can, they can think about all these things that they want to do in retirement. Well, where's your ultimate retirement? It's in heaven. It's on the new earth. That is where it is. That is where your hope is. That is where your heart is. How much do you spend thinking about that? How often does your mind wander from this world to the heavenly kingdom that you will inherit in Christ. Just to, just to get you to really, it's a paradigm shift that you really start to think about that. There's a famous quote by a man named Abraham Kuyper. You probably heard it. It says this. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not scream, mine. Right? All of that out there, all that in here, Every one of you belong to Christ. He can say, mine, this all belongs to me. He is sovereign over all of it, right? But we can modify this quote, and we can change it and say this. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which we in Christ cannot say, mine. You see what good news that is? Do you realize that? You can drive down the street, and you can look at all of that and say, this belongs to me. This is mine because it belongs to Christ and I am his and he is mine. This is what we have. When you go out there and look at all of the beauty of creation, all the kingdoms, all the castles. I've never left America, but I hear that Europe has all these beautiful castles and all these kingdoms. Anybody seen those beautiful kingdoms and castles and all that beautiful landscape? You know that all belongs to you. It does. This is what we have in Christ. So in light of this, how should we then live? When we see that we have a future-oriented eschatological religion, primarily about a future hope of what is to come, how should we then live? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So back to that beginning of the sermon. If we were to take back the last week, we can go back. The last month, we can keep going back. The last year, the last five years. Hope for you who have been a Christian for five years, we put all of your thoughts, your volitional thoughts, the ones that you chose to have, the ones that you were just thinking about, we were to put it up and, and we were to weigh them and account them. Where would we find it? Is it primarily on things on earth or primarily in things in heaven? And if it's not, we need to evaluate ourselves and say, my mind's on the wrong things. My hopes are on the wrong things. My aspirations are in the wrong things.
you know, that fire movement I was talking about, they make enormous sacrifices. Some of those people live on 50% of their income. Some of them people live on 20% of their income. They make huge sacrifices. They eat literally rice and beans. They, they live in a tiny room when they have amazing paying jobs, making over $200,000, and they live in a tiny room, all so that they can one day have that kingdom that they want. They make enormous sacrifices for their kingdom. You know how they do it? Because they keep thinking about what it'll be like when they could finally retire at 35, at 40. That's what they keep doing. They keep the goal there, which gives them the motivation to do current sacrifices for future reward. We can learn something about that, right? You know, what will get you to make sacrifices will get you to be more godly, to dig in, to dig deeper, to give more of your time, give more of your money, give more of your heart to God. It's keeping the goal in mind. It's this text, keeping your mind in heaven, remembering what is your reward? Why are you doing this? Thinking of Christ, that will propel you to do those great sacrifices. The last thing is this. Bad times may be coming. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I don't know if bad times are coming. Maybe for the country, maybe just for you. We got that prayer list. Look at that prayer list. Scan over that prayer list in your mind or physically take it out and look at it. How many of that prayer list has items called bad things? How many of those things are bad things, even that happen to good people? Bad things may be coming. That's just a reality. But here's the wonderful thing. Something great is coming. Something really great is coming because our hope is in heaven. We'll conclude with this wonderful verse. I really hope this impresses in your heart. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You can have the greatest hope. Nobody can take this away from you. Your name is written in heaven. You will reign with him. All of this will be yours because it's Christ. And everything that's in Christ will be yours. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we can look out on all of creation. We don't have to be jealous of anybody or anything. We don't have to be jealous of health, of wealth, of prosperity, better nations. None of those things, Lord. None of these things matter. We know that you have conquered. You have earned all of creation. And that one day that you will reign over it. And Lord, we thank you that we will one day reign with you. Help us to get our minds off of the treasure of these things on earth, whether they be health, prosperity, riches, whatever they might be, anything on earth, Lord. It's so transitory. It's so vanity of vanities. Help us to get our minds on you, to get heaven in our mind, to get the new earth in our hearts so that we will live for you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.